This and every episode of Project 7 is proudly presented by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. With their exclusive Fibrex material, all of their windows are custom-made, high-performance, energy-efficient, and installed by certified installers. Log on today to request your free in-home estimate and take advantage of their buy one, get one 40% off sale with no money down, no interest, and no payments for 12 months with approved credit. Visit rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. That's rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. Project 7 contains explicit language, descriptions of violence, and discussion of suicide. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Okay. Yeah, no, I, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I still like to be involved in this case when it comes to that, but that, a lot of that's for me. I, um, you know, even if things like this, like I said, can spark something where, somebody knows something, you know, they hear your podcast and they're like, holy Christ, we know this guy. It's just, it just benefits everybody. I would really like to know eventually what happened. I mean, I would hate to grow old and die without ever knowing what happened with this case, but that is a huge possibility. So. Welcome to Project 7. I'm Andy Viano. And I'm Justin Franz. And this is Episode 6, The Hunt. David, don't, go ahead and call the joke. David, are, are, go ahead and disbelieve it. You're about to start something that you have no idea what you're doing. It was the police department, local law enforcement, and local politicians, and kill them all. They were hoping to basically incite the federal government and kicking off this civil war. People were going to die or get hurt, and that's where the whole shit hits the fan. Yeah, he's definitely looking for a place to confront us here. I cannot imagine how terrifying it would be. I received a call and I said, hey... David Berger just popped some shots off at the Missoula County deputies and was like, okay, I'm on my way. And I really expected him to be laying on the ground, but as we cleared it, he was gone. At that point, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. It's that mystery that hasn't been solved. It's the Amelia Earhart of our day in Montana, right? Where is David Berger? If he is alive and he's staying out of trouble, I just hope he does that. Should have done that in the first place. Wouldn't be here doing this story, but I don't really care what people think about me, and I don't care what they write in the paper. Friend, you do anything you got to do, okay? Hey, you do. You, you remember that this, whatever happens after this moment, will never go away unless it's positive. David Berger never had a wonderful life. In June of 2011, the 47-year-old former militia leader had been out of prison for a year, but he was struggling, as he always had, to get out of the shadow of his past misconduct. David had spent nearly a decade in prison after being convicted on federal gun charges in 2002, stemming from his involvement in a militia called Project 7 that plotted to assassinate local politicians, judges, and cops using caches of weapons they had buried in the woods of northwest Montana. When he got out of prison in 2010, David made a real attempt at starting a new life by becoming a ranch hand out on the plains, far from his troubled past in western Montana. But that new life didn't last long. After getting into a fight with the rancher, David was back on the streets, living out of his car around Missoula, Montana, including at a small day-use area called Fort Fizzle off U.S. Highway 12. According to friends, David had camped here for a few days in early June 2011. The day-use area isn't fancy. It has a small parking lot, a picnic area, and a path that runs down to a creek. A peaceful place to be alone with one's thoughts. But that peace would be shattered early on the morning of Sunday, June 12, 2011. 911, what are you reporting? Uh, we are reporting. We live on Highway 12. Uh-huh. And just before you get to Fort Fizzle, uh, there is an electric, where the electric people came in on a line there, and there has been someone parked there and sleeping there the last five nights or so. That simple 911 call would set into motion a series of events leading to David's disappearance and creating one of Montana's most enduring mysteries. Where is David Bergert? So the FBI, U.S. Marshals, the U.S. Forest Service, and the Bureau of Land Management, and the National Guard, all in this hunt right now, joining local police in the search for this man. David Bergert is his name. 
He's 47 years old. He's a former Marine and a backwoods survivalist. They think he's been living out of his vehicle loaded with ammo uh, to the teeth in the woods of Montana. Now, once he was the leader of an... Only some of what was reported in that clip turned out to be true. And the sensational way David's confrontation was covered would be eclipsed only by the sensational way his legend has grown in the years afterwards. That's the story we thought we would be telling in December of 2018, when, as two newspaper reporters with the Flathead Beacon, we first decided to make this podcast. But it's not the story we found. David Bergert is no boogeyman, and while he's far from a candidate for sainthood, he is neither the heartless monster nor the criminal mastermind he's been portrayed as in the almost nine years since he disappeared. So Andy and I poured through the ups and downs of David's life, scrutinized the moments that friends said had shaped his worldview, and analyzed what we could find of David in his own words. And then we got in our car and headed south from our office in Kalispell to the Lolo National Forest to see for ourselves where David's final act played out. That's a good idea. Weird. It's not what I pictured in my mind. No, it's a rest stop. Yeah, I was expected. <laughs> did not picture a rest stop. So this is where, like, this is where David drove through the ditch. So as we pulled in, he got in the Jeep and started it and had already started driving. So we drove by him, kind of looked at us, we looked at him, flipped around really quick, and started speeding out of Fort Fizzle, which is not a very big parking lot. So then, as he got up to the stop sign to Highway 12, he ran the stop sign without stopping, took a right, and started speeding down the highway. Well, then the stop sign violation gave me a reason to pull him over. So that's when I turned on my lights, tried getting behind him. He only went maybe an eighth of a mile to the other approach into Fort Fizzle and pulled off the road back into Fort Fizzle and then took an immediate left and started driving through the ditch. Yeah. So maybe you're right. He's gotten in the Jeep and gone you Like, to be totally honest, like... I mean, I guess, I mean, he was, this is a weird place to camp. Like, if I want to get away yeah. and and not be seen in the mountains of Montana, I can think of a million better places than this. Like, yeah. we were on so the So, if the ditch, um, if it wasn't for the power lines running through the ditch, it's basically the woods. I don't know if you guys have been on Highway 12. And we are away from everything now. As close as Fort Fizzle is... Sort of to Missoula, within like 15 miles. It Once is. you hit it, there's there's a couple houses here and there, but we're we're pretty pretty good in the country. This was my first car so, yeah, pursuit since I'd been hired. Um, but the pursuits you watch on TV, they're high speed. This guy was doing 55, 60 miles an hour. I think he got up to 80 maybe a couple times. At one point, we had got out almost right next to him. We're only doing you know 65, 70, and we're driving next to him down the highway and. He's just driving along. He was just so laid back. Um, you know, that's one of the comments my sheriff made was how relaxed um, I was on the radio and stuff. And, and I have to give it to him a little bit. I think it was, I mean, it was such a regular slow speed. You know, there was like no adrenaline almost because there was no reason for it. We weren't flying down the highway. There's not, you know. Uh, okay, so yeah, turn on Graves Creek Road. There's this little sign for the jack. It's a dirt road. Jack. Another sign for the Jack. I think Jack's that way. It's a B crossing. That's a fun sign. It was a place that looked like it had been logged and then had some regrowth. So the pine trees are talking like six, eight feet tall, small ones, small enough where the Jeep was able to climb over some and kind of push its way around others. Um, and it just kind of disappeared. You could tell it was a little two track road that I don't know if he had been on it before, but somebody had driven up to where he was before. In the Dodge Charger, all we could do was stay on the road. As we started getting closer to the Jeep, Will was probably 20 yards away. I was probably 10 yards behind that, and we were probably about 10 or 15 yards apart, kind of triangulating up towards the Jeep. I don't know if that was the first time David saw us coming, but he hurried and ran around the front of the Jeep and ducked down on the passenger side. I probably made two or three more steps when he popped over the hood from the passenger side of the Jeep, had both hands on his handgun, laid over the hood so I could just see the handgun, his hands, and the top of his head. 
And that's when uh, I remember seeing the first recoil. As soon as I saw that first recoil, I started shooting with my 12 gauge. I think I shot four rounds as I was walking. So then we just kept going. I, I reloaded a shell and, and then Will went around the back of the Jeep. I went around the front of the Jeep and I really expected him to be laying on the ground and still maybe want to be in a gunfight when we got there. But as we cleared it, he was gone. There was no sign of him around the Jeep at all. At that point, the hair on the back of my neck stood up because right between where we were standing in the Jeep or between the, where we were and the Jeep was just pine trees. I mean, it was all pine trees, just tall, thick brush. I wanted just instinctively and through our training to start going after him. You could kind of see a little trail, and then Will stopped me and was like, no, no, if he's just sitting in that brush waiting, we'll be picked off. The search for David Berger began that day, but as Larry Schwint attested, it did not begin immediately. Not knowing whether or not they had struck their suspect, Larry and his training officer, veteran deputy Will Newsom, were in an extremely dangerous spot. I had a really sick stomach, or really sick feeling in my stomach, in the pit of my stomach, just because he was missing. This guy had just shot at us, and now we don't have a clue where he is. Um, at that point, you already know he's willing to shoot at you, so you know, you're kind of worried that he's trying to take cover and re-engage. And I think Will made the right call at the time because of his tactical advantage he would have had over us to stay there. Time just seemed to stand still, especially once I realized we hadn't hit him and he was gone and it was just me and Will. Um, it felt like forever, but I think, I think our closest backup was probably maybe at that point 10 minutes away. Once backup got there, when we had another person to help cover, we had, once we had two, I think two or three more deputies there is when we decided to go in through those trees. And after we walked, I would say maybe 10 feet, 12 feet through him. I mean, it just opened up. It opened up again. So I do think if he hadn't tried taking cover in those trees and was just on the run, if we would have pursued him, I think we probably would have seen him dropping down the other side into that valley. So my name is uh, Captain Anthony Rio. I'm with the Missoula County Sheriff's Office. Uh, at the time of this incident, I was a patrol sergeant. I think I'd been a patrol sergeant for five years when, when this incident happened. Knowing that he is this, in his mind, survivalist, that he has kind of led us out into the woods and that maybe he's hunting us, um, it was kind of a tense. We really started only kind of moving undercover and... We were trying to establish a perimeter, but like I said, we did not know if he was going to be lying in wait for us. You know, what exactly? We were trying to get the city, Missoula Police Department there with the dogs. It was uh, fairly chaotic or just trying to set up the perimeter and not get killed. Ultimately, the troops showed up and uh, the sheriff at that time, Carl Ibsen, we were going to go do a just a, a search, all of us a few feet apart, walking down through the, the trees. And um, we had all the guys lined up. We started moving down through the trees, and then uh, you could just tell that something changed with him, and he changed his mind about having all of the deputies walk down like that. And they, they devised a different plan, and instead we set up a perimeter around the area. That day there was some frustration, and I understand where Tony's coming from because there was a lot of comments that day about this. So when SRT showed up, instead of flushing that valley really quick, they said it might be too dangerous, so they didn't do anything. They, they showed up, they formulated, they got together, they gathered, they started putting together a plan, and we had left, but to my understanding, it was a significant amount of time between the shooting and the time they actually started going down through that valley. And I know it frustrated some of the SRT guys, because they were like, listen, this is what we do. You guys came up, you got in this shooting. We're the special response team. It's now our job to get down there and try to find this guy. But there was some concern from uh, some of the administration that it could be this guy probably had a tactical advantage and had it planned and maybe sitting there waiting to ambush him, that the decision was made to wait. While they waited for the all clear from their superiors, Rio said he and others heard a single gunshot. We were standing up on the ridge right on the other side of his vehicle after the trees using trees as cover, but still standing up there and glassing the whole area that we could see. We could see roughly, oh, uh, in one way, almost a mile mm -hmm. down into the trees that if he came out of the trees at all, we would have been able to see him. 
And as we were standing up there, we heard one lone gunshot. We go down to our range all the time. We, um, I'm a firearms instructor. You go down to our range and you have to go in, open a gate. Somebody's down there shooting. Um, from our gate to the targets and to the firing line, it's roughly 500 yards, maybe four. And you know what a pistol sounds like. You know what a, I mean, you just do. You just know what a 40 caliber pistol or whatever, nine millimeter. I mean, they just, and so as we were standing up there and we're glassing, there was a one lone gunshot that came off. It sounded four to 500 yards away. And that was it. Only one gunshot. At the time, when we started the searches, the sheriff wasn't real keen that sheriff wasn't real keen on going over there. And, and a couple of us just said, look, we, we know what we heard. And um, he just wouldn't have it. He thought that the guy, that Berger ran downhill and that it was the least past the resistance and that this is what anybody would do. And they searched that area, I don't know, three times at least and didn't find anything. But they wouldn't go over and search. And it was... For me, it was really hard. It was kind of a, a bone of contention, if you will. The disagreement that day between Anthony Rio and Sheriff Carl Ebsen was not the first time the two men had clashed. We didn't like each other. We, we could work together, but we didn't like each other. And so if I, at that time, if I would have said, these green trees look really great, he would have said, look, these trees are blue. They're not green, that type of thing. So... I guess I'm just, you know, I didn't really want to get into it, but it's really one of the, uh, in my mind, one of the reasons. And I'm, tr- and I'm trying to be gracious um, because, uh, you know, I could probably say a lot more. But, but in the end, um, he just refused, really, I believe, because it was coming from me. In 2019, we tracked down Carl Ibsen, who's now retired and, at the time of our interview, was riding his motorcycle across the Southwest. This call is now being recorded. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carl. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. You know some of David's history. You've obviously seen that he's willing to fire at law enforcement because he's just done that. I mean, what do you do during a search like that to ensure that, you know, you're not being ambushed, that David isn't out there lying in wait for somebody to come looking for it? Well, you know, that was part of the reason that uh, Will and and Larry stayed basically pretty darn close to where it occurred um, was just so that. And it's one of the reasons why during the searching we were within touching distance or um, within just a very short distance of each other just for that possibility because there was there was a ton of area where um, – you know, you could you could easily walk by a guy under under some of that brush and not see him, and that would give him the opportunity to attack you. In the in the process of doing this story, we've talked to a number of people, and and Tony says that he recalls hearing a, a gunshot at one point soon after Bird disappeared. Do you have any recollection of that? I didn't, but I I do know the guy uh, that that was was talked about at the time. The guys who did hear it, and it it seems to me. And again, remember, this has been a long time, and I've been out of the out of law enforcement a long time. Um, but if I'm remembering correctly, it was down to the right of the shooting incident, and. Uh, I think the people said it sounded like it could even be one drainage over, mm-hmm. which is pretty good distance. Yeah. How much credence do you give that report? I mean, when you hear from some of the, the folks on the scene that they heard a gunshot, how does that affect the search plan at that point? Um, it gives you an idea of a, a possible direction, but, you know, then again, you want, you think – could he have made it that, that what it seems to be that far in that amount of time? And the other is, is it someone up there taking a shot at a a bear in their on their property? Is you know it could be could be anything, but it certainly was was worth worth them checking out. And so you guys did search the the area. We, the we direction could, of that. Yeah, yeah. 
During our interview with, with Tony Rio, he suggested, in his opinion, that the initial search was not aggressive enough. How do you respond to that assessment? Yeah, I would disagree with that. You got to balance. You got to balance with aggressive with safety. And I think they. I think the guys all did a fantastic job. One of the things you don't want to give you a chance to respond to this too that, that Tony said is that maybe you and he did not have the best relationship, and that he thought maybe you were not as open to his advice because it was coming from him. I guess how how do you respond to to that, Tony? Well, yeah, I've, again, I would disagree. That might might be a perception he had, but uh, you know, I was I was in the in in the uh, venue of law enforcement for a very very long time, and I care very little whether I like you or not like you. I, and I think that's most of the cops. You know, we get the job done. What What was your opinion of, of Tony and the years you you got to work with him? He's a very, very good cop. He does some real good work. And every once in a while, like me and like everybody else, you make a glitch. But as far as if, as far as if, if, if you're looking, um, you know, the, the, the balance, I, th I think the balance you, I had to look at, you know, I, I, uh, it's interesting when you, when you finally step into the, the shoes of the sheriff position. You do things differently than you do at any level below that, and that is because when there's a level below that, there's people in between you and the boss to make a lot of those decisions out on the on the scene. Once you're in the position of the sheriff, the safety of every single one of those people out there is not theirs anymore. Their responsibility any less than it is yours. So you have to balance things between what what is an efficient way to do stuff and how can we do it as safely as possible. Like I said, uh, my primary concern in my career has been, and especially as the sheriff, is everybody goes home safe. Project 7 and all of the journalism that comes from the Flathead Beacons newsroom in downtown Kalispell is made possible in part because of contributions from members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. What is the Flathead Beacon Editors Club? The Editors Club was created in 2018 as a way for our readers to support the important work we do. Remember, each and every issue of the Flathead Beacon and everything at flatheadbeacon.com is free, but that doesn't mean it's free to produce. In fact, good quality journalism is expensive. But for as little as $5 a month, Beacon Editors Club members can help make our work possible. And while $5 doesn't sound like much, taken together, those contributions can do a lot. Like help us crisscross Western Montana for over 15 months to bring you this podcast. And being a member of the Editors Club comes with some great perks, like bonus episodes of Project 7 and one of our popular Glacier National Park posters. Want to learn more? Head over to BeaconEditorsClub.com today and sign up. Welcome back to Project 7. Not long after David Berger shot at sheriff's deputies and fled into the woods on June 12, 2011, law enforcement agencies from throughout the Pacific Northwest began to descend on the Lolo National Forest, including FBI Special Agent Steve Liss. I received the call and I said, hey, David Berger just popped some shots off at the Missoula County deputies and it's like, okay, I'm on my way. We got there. It was raining. It was miserable. You couldn't get a helicopter in there because of cloud cover. It's typical gravel road. It was thick, steep. Uh, worst case scenario, if you're trying to find somebody with a gun, everything's against you from a law enforcement perspective. To you know, we, this happened. We had a. I know what they did is when they chased them. I think that was later in the day. So of course we couldn't do anything at night, trying to get more resources in there. So David. Had a, had a, it, still don't know what happened to him, but if he survived the shooting and 
and went out and didn't take his own life, then he certainly had a really good really good jump on law enforcement time-wise. Back in Flathead County, sheriff's deputies there, many of whom had been part of the standoff with David West of Kalispell nine years earlier, arrived in Missoula County to assist in the search. Here's Deputy Dave Lieb. It was within the week, um, maybe three days after, maybe after the shooting occurred down there, we, uh, our SWAT team went down. Uh, I was the SWAT team commander at that time, and we went down, met with Missoula County, uh, went up to the scene, and Missoula SWAT team, our SWAT team, I think maybe Lewis and Clark, or uh, yeah, Lewis and Clark's team, I think, came over. And we took different segments of the, the area, or gridded it off, and, and searched uh, the area uh, with no success. Dave Lieb and Chuck Curry, who was under sheriff in 2002 and later elected sheriff himself in 2010, were looking for a different man in Lolo than the one they had pursued in Kalispell. In 2002, David Burgert had ample opportunity to fire at officers who were chasing him through the snow in the pitch black night, but he never took the shot. Now, in 2011, David tried to kill two sheriff's deputies in a brazen assault on a rainy Sunday afternoon. Here's Chuck Curry. Uh, I wasn't surprised, certainly. Uh, Again, I hadn't thought about him in a lot of years. But, yeah, surprised, no. I think we we certainly were aware of it because he was from here. He'd been convicted out of here. Missoula County let us know about it. Uh, Took the appropriate precautions to let his ex-wife know, let anybody we knew of that might be affiliated with him know, and um, started keeping an eye out for him up here. So yeah, that, that certainly was on the menu that he could, he could return up here if he had gotten away from him down there. You know, you had to, you had to assume that given his history and his, you know, the threats that he had made, he couldn't be all, I mean, most of us felt it that, that, you know, that he was pretty much a puss after, after that big pursuit and stuff. But at the same time, he had uh, he had the weapons. He had the knowledge. Uh, he had made a lot of threats, and there had to be a little bit of capability of following through on that. Added to that uh, the fact that he had now spent a significant time in prison, where his demeanor probably didn't improve. You know, I'm not too surprised that it happened. The search for David Bergert continued for weeks, and tips rolled in. But one after another, officers came up empty on each one. That only added to the anxiety surrounding the situation as fears continued to mount that David had escaped and was lurking somewhere, armed in the woods and ready to strike. Weeks turned into months, which turned into years, and almost nine years later, there are now few clues to what happened to David. It's the kind of story that has stuck with almost everyone involved, including Larry Schwint, who left law enforcement in 2013, but still thinks about this case. I can definitely tell you I wanted to shoot the guy. I mean, I won't lie about that. I wanted to shoot the guy, especially, I mean, he started firing at us. It was my goal to hit him. I didn't care where. I just wanted him to quit shooting at us. So, um, and and I do, I still feel guilty to this day that we, that neither of us hit him. So, because this is happening, you know, I mean, this will go on forever. So, especially if he's deceased, there will never be an answer to it. And as time has gone on, Larry and some other people involved in the chase in 2011 haven't been able to shake another odd suspicion about the events of that day. Some of them believe David may have planned at least part of that day's encounter him knowing when we were showing up by waving at us and then going and getting in the driver's seat, he knew we weren't just deputies driving down the highway. I think he knew we were going to swing in there. He knew we were about to contact him. And then something Will Newsom said on the radio on the way up during the pursuit was, I believe this guy is trying to find a tactical advantage. And for, well, uh, we're just plugging along. I'm just concerned that he's uh, trying to a tactically uh, optimum place for him to engage us. He was taking his time. When he was putting that shoulder holster and like the fanny pack on, he was taking his time. I mean, he, was, it was, he wasn't in a hurry. He was standing outside it. Those take a little bit to put on. But we startled him. When we got out of that car and got halfway up that hill and he turned and looked and saw us, 
it was complete surprise. He had no idea we were there, I don't think, and he really had no idea we were going to come up after him. His whole plan changed. Everything changed. All of a sudden, here he is standing there in the open next to that Jeep. I have a shotgun. Will has a rifle. And all he has on him is a shoulder holster with a handgun in it. And, you know, he disappears around the other side of the Jeep for a split second. I don't know if that split second is him thinking, if I try to run, they're going to shoot me in the back. I better engage him. I mean, you don't know what, what's going through his mind. But, but I think all of it was planned up until the actual shooting. Regardless of whether or not David had planned the encounter, the end result was the same. Larry Schwint and Will Newsom fired shots at David Burgert, walked up to his vehicle expecting to see him laying on the ground, and instead found nothing. No one has seen David Burgert, dead or alive, ever since. There is at least one person, however, who thinks he knows what happened to David that day. Anthony Rio at the Missoula County Sheriff's Office was promoted when a new sheriff, T.J. McDermott, took office in 2015. That same year, with his new authority, Rio decided to go back to Wagon Mountain Road, this time with cadaver dogs, to search the area where he heard a gunshot in 2011. So we went up there, and we would start in the mornings. That's when the scent really pools. Um, any kind of methane, any kind of that will will pool and stay low, and the dogs really like that. Plus, it's obviously cooler for the dogs. Anyway, four different dogs down on that side of the mountain, and I mean, it's steep and it's thick. It's horrible. Hit on or alerted to human remains. So I'm not saying, I'm just saying that four different dogs, and it could have been a, a logging accident from the 1800s. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not saying that it was David Berger, but I am saying that four different dogs independently, because they that's how they run the dogs. They One dog comes out, three of them stay away. Then the other dog comes out, and they they could get each of those dogs to actually... Um, hit and do the same thing they would even when they had a hit in a certain area they would actually take their dogs and lead them in a different way and the dog would go for a while and then the dog would turn and go right back down to where the other dog had hit on and or alerted to human remains we brought a bunch of students up and we tried to grid off a search area we used metal detectors we used um and we tried to search that mountain. It was so, oh my gosh, it was arduous. I mean, it was horrible. And we just never found anything. We spoke with two of the dog handlers who were there for those searches, and their accounts mostly lined up with Anthony Rio's story. The dogs were, in their parlance, interested in a similar area, but by no means did that interest indicate a body with certainty and furthermore, they would have no way to know if that interest was related to any specific person, like, say, David Bergert. Yeah, there's a certain area they, they had some interest in. But, you know, as far as interest, there could be something there. We're talking about any remains of anything, right? right? So, And we don't have a specific scent article to match anything. So you you take that into consideration in how their behavior, it wasn't... You know, they didn't give us any hits or alerts on mm -hmm. anything. They just were more, uh, the interest was there. But you have to figure out and sort through what would that be, interest be exactly. So, How big an area are we talking about when they have an interest? Uh, oh, that's, that was not that big of an area. It was not that big. Probably. I'm trying to think of reference. Hmm. Probably from the street to the manhole right here. Yeah. So we're okay. maybe with. 40 40 feet. Yeah, there was a certain area that seemed, but once again, we don't know all that could be going on in that area. So. And that they are trained to find human remains, right? Not so. If it was a, a dead deer that had been there, they're not. They're not finding. No, that. we proof them off of it, and they get tested on that. And, and they were on that day specifically looking for yep human remains. Yeah. Another benefit of having a specific command is we tell them, go look for this. Mm -hmm. This is what they're going to go look for. Yep. And so on that day, they were looking for human remains. Yep. And we do extensive proofing off of anything else out there when we're doing that because um, we don't want any a question as far as them hitting on uh, 
you know, human or um, animal or any other type of remains. Of course, by the time the cadaver dogs went with Anthony Rio to the site, there was little chance any remains would be visible to the naked eye. It had been four years since the shooting, meaning four winters worth of snow had fallen and four years of snowmelt had run down the steep mountainside, carrying everything in its path. And that's to say nothing of the plentiful wildlife, including grizzly bears that frequent the area, and the thick brush that could easily conceal any remains at ground level. That doesn't mean there's nothing to be found, however, or that Anthony Rio is preparing to give up the search anytime soon. From what I was told, the, the clothing really disappears quite fast, except for uh, reinforced areas and zippers, pockets, that type of thing. But then bones, and you know, you're talking about the bigger bones, the, the, the femurs and the um, spine and the skull, those, you know, last quite a bit longer. Whereas the smaller bones, from what I understand, will get scattered. You know, they'll be a long ways from where someone expired. From, from what I remember from them, them talking that, you know, these guys are the cadaver experts and they're, uh, they just say that it just, you know, really depends on what gets scattered and, and carried away. But that, that handgun, that's not going anywhere. The uh, zippers and the rivets in jeans or I don't, I don't know exactly what he was wearing, but stuff like that I, will obviously last. And, um, you know, I, I think he had like a mag holder or something. He had to, he lost his magazine somehow. He must have had. And so I think a lot of that stuff, the buttons and the, the metal will stick around. And that was really my hope. If we found a gun or a zipper or a, I think it would give us such a great spot to really focus the search that we would ultimately find something, God willing, that we could do a DNA test on and come to that conclusion. At least that's always been, you know, really been my hope, that there's just something there that we could do again. decade after David went missing in the mountains south of Lolo, he remains on the U.S. Marshal's most wanted list. In late 2019, we spoke with the Marshal in charge of the investigation. He said that for years after David's disappearance, law enforcement would receive tips about possible sightings. Every time they got a tip, they would track it down and exhaust every lead. And every time they did, they would come up empty-handed. However, the marshal said that until they find compelling evidence that David Burgard is dead, they work under the assumption that he is alive and in hiding. So what does any of this mean? What happened to David Berger in the end? And what happened in the years before that that brought our story here? Was David dangerous? Was he a villain? Was he misunderstood? Was he ill? Was he all of those? When we come back from one final break, the conclusion to Project 7. And 18 months ago, over gas station casino cocktails, Justin Franz and I decided to make a podcast for the Flathead Beacon, and we settled on a dramatic subject with a simple premise. Could we solve a mystery that had become a Northwest Montana urban legend and find a dangerous militiaman hiding in the woods? Could we answer that question? Where 
is David Bergert. So for 18 months, we started with that question. But along the way, dozens of other questions kept popping up. What role did David's upbringing have in his future and on his mental health? Why were so many opportunities to help him missed? What did he really believe about the federal government? Was he right to be paranoid of the local cops? And was he really going to kill those people? We've spent the last six weeks trying to answer those questions. But until now, we haven't come back to the big one. Where is David Bergert? It's the one question we asked every person we interviewed for this story. Here's Chuck Curry, former sheriff and undersheriff of Flathead County. I think Dave Bergert's dead. But just based upon Dave Bergert's history and based upon the type of person that I know him to be, he's not that kind of guy that can just stay off the radar and not come to somebody's attention. He's got too big of an ego. He needs that interaction confrontation. He's just, like I said, a bully. And if he was alive, um, he would have come to law enforcement's attention anywhere in the country he may be at. He's just not a um, fade away quietly into the sunset living up in the woods as a hermit kind of guy. That's the big question is why, why wasn't his body recovered if he did die? And uh, all I can say is I haven't been there personally, but I've talked to people that were down there and it's rugged terrain. And somebody who is deceased can be pretty hard to come up with, especially if they traveled any distance uh, away from where your initial point last seen is. So you got miles and miles and miles of woods to cover, and sometimes we just aren't successful. Every uh, every hunting season, I always wonder a little bit, is some hunter going to stumble upon some remains up there? Hasn't happened yet, so maybe we never will know. Maybe he'll, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe he is still alive, being harbored by somebody somewhere, and maybe he'll resurface. It's tough to say, but I don't think so, but... I've been wrong lots of times in my life. I think now it's everybody's still interested just because it's that mystery that hasn't been solved. It's the Amelia Earhart of, of our day in Montana, right? So where's David Bergert? Uh, is he living in the woods as a hermit? Is he being harbored by uh, somebody with like beliefs as him? Is Did he move back down south? Is he dead at the bottom of a cliff somewhere in the wilderness nobody really knows and that's uh there's no closure there's no there's no answer so sure it's gonna gonna still be out there here's steve liss formerly a special agent with the fbi considering who david Berger is 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 you know his his, uh, his ideology the run-ins what he had for law enforcement uh, until you can find some hard evidence that said you know david's deceased you don't have any choice but to assume that there's a possibility he's out there alive. When we worked with the, uh, we were closely with the marshal's office because David was on supervised release with the courts when the incident occurred. And our attitude is we have to turn over every stone and be diligent every day and never back off. Because the one thing we didn't want to do was get a phone call one morning that said David had an altercation with law enforcement and it didn't turn out good. Anytime somebody called in, like, you know, America's Most Wanted aired David Berger, and anytime somebody would come in with a tip or a little tad of information, we'd run it down completely and exhaust it until there was nothing left to, to ensure uh, every rock was flipped over. You've heard of Murphy's Law. If it can go wrong, it, it will go wrong. And I believe every police officer has Mr. Murphy in his back seat. When he least expects it, Murphy gets out and it does go wrong. And until you can find concrete evidence that says this is David Bergert from a pure safety standpoint and law enforcement safety and community safety, I don't think you can write him off as dead until you find proof that he, he still could be out there. It's just, you know, I don't know what the percentage is you want to place on it, but I'm not willing. Uh, and I know that other people that I worked with, they're just not comfortable sitting back saying, ah, that's probably that one shot David probably shot himself. Mm-mm. The minute you let your guard down, bang, Mr. Murphy can pop up and there could be David Burke and it's not worth taking that chance. you got to keep your guard up until you can find out where he is or what happened to him. It's my opinion. 
you know, what happens if he's up in Canada? What happens if he's down in Mexico? You know, far away, we're, we're not privy to the dysfunctional behavior of David Berger and stir that he's creating in a community. You know, the playing field's wide open on, 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 on what ifs. You know, if he had another car, if he had contacts and he was able to get and travel to those contacts and then said, hey, we'll just take you here and we'll stash you here and then we'll get you to a place where nobody will find you. I don't, I don't know. Is that possible? You know, and, and anything's possible. You know, it's the probability. Uh, like I say, from my perspective, until you can find hard proof that says David Berger is no longer a threat, you can't let that guard down. It isn't worth it. The cost you'd pay, you, somebody would pay the ultimate cost for that mistake. Travis McAdam of the Montana Human Rights Network. That's like the million dollar question. And honestly, you know, I would say I've gone back and forth <laughs> over the years about what I think happened. Let's say his plan was like he goes into the woods for a while and then goes to another community somewhere and settles down. Just given his background, I can't see him just blending into a community and not causing problems and not kind of popping up on the radar. So I'm, I don't really know what scenario I believe. I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, two, five, ten years from now, hikers are going to find a body out in the woods um, and that he died out in the woods. But I don't know. I mean, like I said, I think I've gone back and forth to really thinking like, I think initially I really did think like, oh, he's living out in the woods somewhere. But past that point, you know, did he, did he die out in the woods? Did he somehow manage to go somewhere else and stay below the radar? It just doesn't, that doesn't seem like Dave Berger. I think that's the other piece to that is you had all of these people at sort of the height of the press coverage that couldn't run away from him fast enough. That doesn't mean that all of those people really didn't appreciate him or didn't agree with him. But I think even some of the people that were saying, oh, you know, yeah, I kind of knew him, but didn't really know him. I think some of those people were lying. And I think that some of those people and other people might have been willing to sort of help him out. But what that would, yeah, what that would look like or how that would have played out um, is a little bit hard to, yeah, kind of hard to figure out. But I, I would imagine a lot of those people that I'm thinking about I'm sure law enforcement was kind of keeping an eye on for, you know, months and months after that to see, oh, you know, does it seem like they're all of a sudden taking these weird trips into the wilderness with storage bins that they don't come out with there, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I do think, I do think that he probably still had supporters, um, up, especially up in the Flathead area that, you know, I don't think probably would have been like hide out at my place, but might have been like, yeah, we should maybe like help him out a little bit. And finally, Jason Larson, the Teenage Project 7 member who became an FBI informant and brought the militia crashing down. I would put every penny and everything I own on it. And I don't know for a fact, but I would put it that he's alive and he's being supported by a group and a network of people that are helping him. They didn't find his body. They had Fleer out there. They had cadaver dogs. They had. They didn't find any blood. I watched the shootout. The cops are not very proficient with their firearms, apparently, because if that was me, the person would be dead if they were shooting. Sorry, I, I don't understand how he got away. So, kind of Dave's M.O. I mean, he always has an escape plan. So, the guy, and as far as being tracked by animals and stuff, he has all that down, you know, I mean. Well, I'm sure people have heard a peep out of him. And if they had killed him there during the shootout, they would have found his body. I mean, they had cadaver dogs. They had Fleer. But, I mean, it was less than two miles to the next road, and if he had already made phone calls and somebody picked him up, by the time they got all that stuff out there, it wasn't, he was gone. He was long gone. And I'm sorry, they would have picked up traces. They would have found his body. I mean, the 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 manpower they had out there, and I think law enforcement saying that he's dead because it's easier if he's dead, right? They don't got to look for him. And I don't want to look for him, especially if he's armed. I don't want to look for him. And I, and to that to that end, you know, he was wronged in a lot of ways, and he did a lot of wrong. 
if he's doing if he is alive and he's staying out of trouble i just hope he does that stay alive and stay out of trouble until you die of natural causes i would never help him but i would say that if he is stay out of trouble and should have done that in the first place we wouldn't be here doing this story but for andy and i the biggest questions we have now 18 months into our reporting have little to do with david's whereabouts that question after all will more than likely never be answered. What we find ourselves coming back to time and time again now is why. Why did a high school dropout with a diagnosed mental illness, someone who more than anything just wanted to help people, find himself going down this path in life? Why did David Burgett's life turn out this way? And could something have been done to change it? In reality, of course, there is no changing what David wrought. There is a vast amount of wreckage in his wake, his life and that of his family atop that list. But there are also the people in Flathead County who still go to sleep at night, thinking about the missing man who allegedly planned to kill them. And there are the other members of Project 7, Jason Larson included, who had their lives completely ruined, and a handful of whom went to federal prison. It all led to a question we spent time pondering with Missoula Independent reporter Jamie Rogers. Did any of this have to happen at all? It's really frustrating and and it's compounded by the idea that everyone in it is also frustrated. You know, I, I think law enforcement in Kalispell was frustrated by David. David was frustrated by them. And you want is so much more palatable for us to have stories where it's good against bad. And this is just the farthest from that. You know, it's just, there are people who made really dumb choices uh, in this story on both sides. You know, it's like the little kid touches the, the hot handle of the pot on the stove and doesn't touch it again. Like David never was that kid. He kept touching it. And part of that was he did have conviction. Part of it is I don't think he had the right parts to stop himself. Like, you know, the mental illness was real with this guy. It's probably a little reductive to say like, oh, he just needed a certain pill and then everything would have been fine. But again, we know that when he was on medication, the people around him found him to be stable, reasonable, not highly excitable, not aggressive. And when he was off, you know, he is camping at state parks and firing at sheriff's deputies. So that's what we have. And I agree with you. It's, it is like, God, all he needed was that. He just needed a little bit more support. But that is not the kind of support our system has the time or resources for. If you are in the system and you struggle with mental health issues and you are not being proactive about your own health, you are most likely going to end up either back where you were or dead. You know? And this is all this is all reductive and every situation is different, but what I do know is that our uh, justice system does not know how to deal with mental health at all. And at the end of the day, that is what this story is about. It is not about, you know, a criminal mastermind. It is not about a guy who wants to take up government. It is about a guy who had an illness and maybe multiple illnesses. And when he was treated for those things, he was fine. And when he wasn't, he was a mess. It's really, really sad. It's really, and it's, and it's just, I also am not saying this from some like righteous perspective of like, we're doing it wrong. I don't know what the solution is. It's, it's, it's an overwhelming challenge. And it's not that nobody wants it to be different, you know? But man, it's a hard one. After we left Jamie, Andy and I headed south from Missoula toward Lolo and Highway 12. We passed Fort Fizzle, turned on Graves Creek Road, 
stopped at the Lumberjack Saloon, and finally came upon the turnoff for Wagon Mountain Road, out of cell service, away from the noise of the highway, and deep in the snow-covered forests of western Montana. Even if it does happen right here, it is a scary spot to get the shootout. Yeah, you know, because there is fucking nothing. Yeah, I mean, and, and they come, they, they, they're shooting, bang, 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 bang. They come up to the car, David's behind the car. They think they've hit him. Yep. They walk around the vehicle, he's not there. So instead he's gone. I mean, if, if they were up here at the vehicle, by the time they got to the vehicle, he could have shot out right here. Right. Right? And they, and he's... And this is what, if he gets down here without being seen, he can circle back down to Graves Creek Road, go down Graves Creek towards Superior, and he's gone. Right. He's got plenty of time to get back down to Graves Creek Road and gone before this backup shows up. This is the obvious way. Right. The unobvious way is down there or up there. Yeah. Or I mean, that's the other option, right? Yeah, you could have gone up here. And once you hit the top of the ridge up here, then I'm sure you can go anywhere out the other side. Once you get over that. Right. Over that is Idaho. Yeah. And so... Hmm. This does feel like it's probably it. the spot. Yeah. Project 7 is a production of the Flathead Beacon newspaper in Kalispell, Montana. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Andy Viano, and Justin Franz. The editor-in-chief of the Beacon is Kellen Brown, and our managing editor is Myers Reese. Music throughout this series is composed by the extremely gifted Jeremy Reinbolt and performed by Nick Spear, Rebecca Spear, Halliday Quist, Jesse Aumann, and Jeremy Reinbolt. And special thanks as well to Marco Forcone. He's the audio engineer for the Project 7 theme who put it together in the midst of a pandemic. Our ad music is Blippy Trance by Kevin McLeod. We use it via Creative Commons License 4.0. The Project 7 logo was designed by Dwayne Harris, and our website was built by Patrick Sappington and Pierce Ware. Special thanks to Flathead Valley Community College, the Montana Human Rights Network, the University of Montana School of Journalism, JusticeProductions.net, the entire staff of the Flathead Beacon, and a special thanks to Rachel, Ashley, and everyone else who put up with us during this production. And a reminder as well, every episode of Project 7 is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson. For more information, find them online at rbamontana.com. Project 7 is made possible by members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Member contributions help pay for all of the Beacon's reporting and help secure our future as the Flathead Valley's most trusted source of local, independent journalism. Members also get access to great perks, including weekly bonus episodes of this podcast. Check out our website at project7pod.com to see documents, videos, and more related to this and every episode. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Project7Pod. If you know the whereabouts of David Berger or want to get in touch with us for any other reason, send an email to project7 at flatheadbeacon.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.